Turn with me to page 645 in your pew Bibles to the very significant two-chapter book of Haggai, a book you probably have never read, maybe. I hope not, but maybe you haven't. Uh, But as you turn there, uh, when you get there, just keep your finger there. We're going to be marching through this uh, piece by piece, so I'm going to talk in between passages. But the background of the book of Haggai is this, that the Jews had been under Babylonian captivity for 70 years, but God has moved to bring them back to Jerusalem. And at that time, about 50,000 Jews returned uh, home to Jerusalem, and now under the rule of Cyrus the Great of the Persian Empire, one of them being Haggai, uh, most likely old enough to have seen the destruction of the Temple of Solomon beforehand, which happened around 587-586 B.C. And so they return under the Jewish leadership of Zerubbabel and Joshua to the temple destroyed. Cyrus had given permission to rebuild, so they started, but work soon waned and stopped due to some outside pressure. And for another 15 to 16 years, that temple lay with only its foundations built. So enters Haggai, a prophet that is called by God to give Israel four quick sermons to this sort of remnant of Jews that have returned home and calling them back again to rebuilding the temple that started in, and that started in 520 BC. Now, Haggai starts out in chapter one, verse two, addressing the civil governor and the religious head. So that's Zerubbabel and Joshua, voicing the excuse that they've used to leave the temple in ruins. And we start in verse two of chapter one. It says, this is what the Lord Almighty says. So God is speaking, all right? This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say the time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be built. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet uh, Haggai. He says, is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? Now, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Now, that is a phrase that he uses over and over again in this book all right so give careful thought to your ways and uh so they're they're on alert now right so these these jews had been brought back to jerusalem they started rebuilding the temple but then they backed off under a storm of social pressure and they used that as an excuse to disincline themselves from this responsibility for the next 16 years And in doing so, they had naturally become more interested in their own houses rather than God's house. Much like what Philippians chapter 2 verse 21 says of us today. Everyone looks out for his own interests, not that of Jesus Christ. Now remember, the temple was located on a trade route with the court of Gentiles right out in front. It was an invitational place for non-Jews to pass by and to see Israel in relationship with God, to experience God, to hear the word of God, and to, uh, to be given the opportunity to actually follow God, right? And so when God speaks here of their paneled houses, it reveals that they have been diverted from God's kingdom purpose in their life. Comfort and desire overriding God's kingdom call for them to bring his message to all the people groups, all the ethnic groups of the world through the vehicle of the temple or the house of God. And now he's exposing this sin of indifference in them. Now look at verse 5. Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. 
Again, that's a phrase he uses over and over and over again. You have planted much, but have harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages, only to put them in a purse with holes in it. So they were an ambitious people, uh, people that we can relate with, right? And we often see that the church in the world is often marked with indifference towards God's call as well. But we come to realize what they came to realize, that even though we may get some of the things that we want in this world, they always leave us empty and unsatisfied and wanting more. So we look at our situation now and we realize that the American pursuit of comfort and pleasure is absolutely out of control. Porn sites get more regular viewers than Netflix, Amazon, and Twitter combined each month. Isn't that amazing? Food proportions in American restaurants are absolutely gar gargantuan. There is an insatiable appetite in us. Rampant desire leads to confusion over sexuality in our children and in adults, which has very dire physical and emotional outcomes on people. Up until 1963, the Bible was taught in our schools and porn was banned. Now that has flip-flopped. Now some call our excess harmless and progressive, but it is really a mask for destructive gluttony and pride and greed, isn't it? Satisfaction eludes us. We end up lonely, afraid, despairing, or depressed since life has absolutely no purpose but for the pursuit of pleasure. And pleasure is a terrible replacement for godly purpose in a human life. So our false truth or lies, we, we should call them, become like the blanket in the, the, the boy in the Dead Poets Society talked about in his free form poem. If you remember that movie, The Dead Poets Society with Robin Williams and some other folks. Uh, but his poem went like this. Truth like a blanket that always leaves your feet cold. You push it, stretch it. It'll never be enough. You kick at it, beat it. It will never cover any of us. From the moment we enter crying to the moment we leave dying, it just, it'll just cover your face as you wail and cry and scream. So false truths are lies like a blanket meant to keep you warm, but it's not enough. It's never enough, right? No matter how much you kick at it and pull at it, it'll never be able to satisfy you. And that, th these people at that time felt that, as do we. But God gives the answer to all of their ills in a directive, starting in verse 7. He says this, This is what the Lord Almighty says, Give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build the house so that I might take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. So he's charging them to make himself central in life, not just to go get materials and build the temple, but to make himself central in their lives. Since people with God as central to themselves, don't self-destruct and don't eat each other alive, do they? Now, it's not arrogance on God's part to want to be central in their lives. That's not arrogance at all. It is compassionate, given it is what we were created for. It's how we were created to be in relationship with our Creator. And that's where we find true life and meaning. So life in Christ is healthy. Life without Him is destructive. So it's a call to build His house. 
Go up into the mountains, bring down timber, chop down cedar logs, hew stone, mix mortar, sharpen your tools, sweating to harvest the materials that are needed. But here's the question, what are the logs and the mortar and the stone of the church today? Because we all know the church isn't a building, right? It's the living body of Christ made up of people. It's me and you and everybody else we fellowship with. So expending time and money and sweat and sacrifice and commitment, we as the church climb the mountains of Indonesia and Tibet and Afghanistan, taking the timber that is there, the the Nepalese, the Javanese, the Lampungese, the Tajik and the Turk and all the other people groups still waiting to hear the gospel, as well as those people here in the Delaware Valley, with opportunities just beyond our door, the people sitting next to us at work or in our families, or at school, at the desk adjacent to us. But the problem is evangelism is awkward in a live and let live society. Now, I've told you this story before, but I think it's relevant to say it again. In an article to CNN, or CNN uh, Ed Stetzer, a missiologist, wrote that comedian Penn Jillette a well-known non-believer explained how he responded to someone sharing the Bible with him. He says, I don't respect people who don't proselytize. Proselytize just means sharing your faith, right? He says, if you believe that there is a heaven and a hell and you think, well, it's not really worth telling them uh, because it would make it socially awkward, how much do you have to hate somebody not to proselytize? And then Stetzer elaborates. He says, I get that Christians who are proselytizing seem out of step in modern live and let live America. But when you're a Christian, you don't get to pick and choose which of his commandments to obey. You just don't. And ours is an unchurched America right now. It is the new mission field, really. Before the pandemic, on average, eight to ten churches a day closed their doors. And that number has grown since the pandemic. They say that 1,700 pastors a month are quitting right now. They say that in 1990, there were 27 churches for every 10,000 people. Now there are about 11. And out of those, many are not preaching the gospel. So we aren't setting stone. We're not placing windows. We're not leveling foundations. We, as the church, are gathering souls, loving people, sharing the gospel, driving forward in sacrifice and love for the sake of building God's house in this world. But, you know, I was, I'm a well-intentioned guy. I really am. (laughs) You know, I came to Christ at 21 years old on fire. I wanted to take on the world for Jesus. The best of intentions and inclined to serve the Lord until... I see no results until I'm met with opposition, until it gets awkward, or until I'm wooed away into safety and comfortability. So this story of 50,000 Jews is like a mirror that reflects my own propensity for indifference. The house of God sits partially built in this world, and I'm only concerned about my retirement account. We need only to read verses 9 through 11 in Haggai chapter 1 to realize that it was a lack of heart-driven action which brought about their condition. Verse 9, you expected much, but see, it turned out to be a little. What you brought home, I blew away, 
Why, declares the Lord Almighty, because of my house, which remains a ruin, while each of you is busy with his own house. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, and whatever the ground produces, on men and cattle and on the labor of your hands. So here is their wake-up call, right? That's their wake-up call. So how did they respond when God said this to them? <coughs> Excuse me. Look at verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai, because the Lord their God had sent him and the people feared the Lord. Now, how often does that happen in the Old Testament where a prophet says something and they follow, they obey? Amen. They, they answered the challenge. That doesn't happen that often. Unlike so many of God's prophets, Haggai wasn't killed or run out on a rail, right? His message was embraced even by leadership. And that is humble leadership, confessing its sin and embracing God's rebuke. Leadership that we would follow, right? Now, I'm a well-intentioned person just like they were. I started out on the right foot just like they did. But at times I have fallen into indifference. And now I also need to be wise and heed the call once again taking the kingdom of God to the next level here in the Delaware Valley. So do you hear God's call in this? Do you hear God's call? And remember that those he calls, he stirs, and those he stirs, he enables to serve. Those he calls, he stirs. Those he stirs, he enables to serve, right? Continuing in verse 13, we see this. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message of the Lord to the people. I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. And they came and they began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius. So we can mark that day. We know that day, right? So with a promise to be with them, he stirs their hearts to action. It's not up to us, remember, to answer the task that God calls us to out of our flesh, to, to sort of begrudgingly force ourselves into obedient service to the Lord. If he calls us, he'll stir our hearts and he will go with us. So the question is, are you stirred? Does it excite you to let it all go and lay down your life, letting him have full reign over every aspect of your life, from, from your bank account to your career to your, to your heart attitude? It's really kind of scary and wonderful at the same time. In the language of Indonesia, Bahasa Indonesia, they had a phrase, rasa gugup, rasa gugup. And that meant, that just really means that you're really excited, but you're very nervous at the same time. But you can't hold yourself back because of your excitement. So we are all rasa gugup about this, maybe, I hope. So they began to work on the temple. Kudos to them. That's great. That's wonderful. But people are people, right? Let's see what happens next in chapter 2, verse 1. 
It says, On the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Speak to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people. Ask them, Who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? So what's happening? Well, have you ever started a project, you know, like a construction project at your house, you know, and you only get half done, (laughs) right? Maybe you're painting a room and you run out of paint and you intend to go to the store and get more, but you don't. And other things seem to take priority. A relative comes to visit or whatever. And you keep saying, man, I got to finish that room. And you begin again and you start sanding. And then you remember, oh, I was supposed to go get some paint and you really don't want to do that. And that's a pain. And the work goes unfinished again. Well, that's kind of like what's happening here. After 15 to 16 years of nothing, they began work for three weeks, and then it grinds to a halt again. And God says these words to them in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Now, the added thing here is that this happens due to some naysayers from their own crowd, other Jews, right? From their, the people from their own crowd that were old enough to have seen the first temple, and they don't like what they're seeing being built right now. In Ezra chapter 3, verse 12, we get a picture of what they were saying. It says, But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud as they saw the foundations of this temple being laid. So at first complaint, they stopped work. But worse yet, the older folks' criticism makes them look on their own work with disdain. Now, does that sound familiar? Listen up, you older folks, right? We have to remember Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 10, which says, Do not say, why were the old days better than these? Why were the old days better than these? Because God is moving forward. Things don't always look the same when he does that, right? Uh, Carly Fiorina served as president of Hewlett-Packard from 1999 to 2005, reinventing the business to compete in a new market. And under her tenure, HP improved dramatically or drastically. She described coming into the company with new ideas, but when she did, people would say to her, it's not the HP way, we can't do that. And as a result of that attitude, the company had been labeled this stodgy old organization. And that's an image that she reversed over time with her willingness to take risk and make strong decisions. Now, we could have the same sort of stubbornness as Carly's uh, early on employees, or we could succumb to despair and we could say, ah, the church was great then, you know, before the pandemic, you know, maybe back in the 70s or 80s or 90s. Oh, the church was great then, but look at it now. Oh, it's in such a shambles, right? Well, let me just tell you that this is the bride of Christ. She cannot die. She only gets better with age, right? She gets only more beautiful with age, just like my wife. You know, she was beautiful when I married her, and she's even more beautiful 30 years later. 
There may be times of purging and purification in the church, rough times in the church, but the church will always emerge better than before since God is building this. 6.8 is taking the gospel into the future. We are breaking new ground in the current cultural landscape within which we reside. It's a difficult one. But we are building a temple more glorious than the first. We'll always need openness to embracing new forms of ministry, allowing them to flourish, not sacrificing content, never sacrificing the principles of the gospel. But forms do change, allowing God to recreate something even more glorious than the first. So it continues in verse 4 of chapter 2. It says, But now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. And work, work, for I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I covenanted with you when you came up out of Egypt. And my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. A lot of us are living in fear these days, aren't we? But he repeats this command of be strong three different times. Be strong. Why? Because he's with you. His spirit remains in you. Don't fear. It's the Lord who will win the day. It is not up to us. It's not up to our wittiness, our knowledge, our greatness, our pocketbook, or anything else about us. The world cannot kill the church. And the weight of the office we bear as Christ's ambassadors depends on who we represent, not on ourselves, and opposition will never prevail over the gospel. Amen to that. Looking at verse 6, God gives a stirring promise. This is what the Lord Almighty says, and I love these verses. Listen to this. In a little while I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land, I will shake all nations. In other words, I'll shake all people groups. And the desired of all nations will come and fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place, I will grant peace declares the Lord Almighty. See how he just declares and declares and declares, right? You know, and as they stood there looking at what they regarded now as a paltry, cheap imitation of the temple, God launches into this wonderful picture of what it will be in the future, assuring them that their work is not in vain. They're not just placing stone upon miserable stone. They are building the house of God. You know, one day somebody was walking past a church being built and he saw three stonemasons working there, building on the church. And, and he asked the first guy, what are you doing? And he said, I'm, I'm cutting this stone to build this archway. And then he went to the second guy and he said, what are you doing? And he said, I'm mortaring this stone into this wall. And then he asked the third guy, what are you doing? And the guy stopped his work, put down his tools and backed up and held out his arms. He says, I'm building the house of God. Now, it's all in how you look at it, isn't it? (laughs) Does your small contribution have kingdom purpose or not? And I'm here to tell you it does. They're going to see that that house filled with God's glory, more so than the first. 
Imagine all of their hopes and excitement when they began to build as to what the Lord would do before the criticism of the older generation rang in their ears. But now they stand looking at this pitiful pile of rocks and have to answer in faith that it's actually going to be something great despite the negativity of their own people. He is foreshadowing here the coming of Christ. Christ will fill the temple with glory. Christ is the desired of all nations, even if they don't know it. But he's also foreshadowing what he will build with in the future. He will shake the heavens and the earth, and the desired of all nations will fall into his hands. Christ will inhabit the temple of souls, right? As we labor in faith, laying stone upon stone, heart upon heart, the desired of all nations will fall into his hands. The Uzbek, the Tajik, the Lampanese, the people of the main line, as he builds and fills his temple with his radiance. Give careful thought to that image. Are we building his house or are we building our house? Are we just cutting stone or building the temple of God? Now God gives a reminder of their former condition in verse 10. And he's reminding them. They need it. He says, On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Ask the priests what the law says. Now I want you to follow this. Listen to it. Ask the priests what the law says. If a person carries consecrated meat in the fold of his garment, and that fold touches some bread or stew, some wine, oil, or other food, does that other food, does it become consecrated? And the priest answers, no. And then Haggai said, if a person defiled by contact with a dead body touches one of those things, does it become defiled? Yes, the priest replied, it becomes defiled. Then Haggai said, so it is with the people and this nation in my sight, declares the Lord. Whatever they do and whatever they offer there is defiled, right? He's saying, really, that it's easier to become defiled than it is to be holy. It's easier to ruin the work of your hands with sin than it is to be committed to holiness. And if consecrated meat touches something, that other thing doesn't become consecrated, right? If an unclean thing touches something else, that other thing becomes unclean. And that's very true, right? If you drop your ice cream on a city street, you're not going to pick it up and eat it. It's dirty. The ice cream didn't make the street clean, right? God's temple is holy and should be treated as such. But if we are living in lives of sin or only of self-concern, then it affects the church as a whole, derailing the task of kingdom building. See, because this is a community task. This is not just about me as an individual. With the majority of people concerned about themselves, the house of God remains unfinished because we need many workers to build a house. So they're building the temple, and it doesn't matter what's on the outside, really, but what's in their hearts. Are they still living in sin, but just going through the motions? Have they given their hearts truly to God in this whole thing? Or are they just playing games now to get crops again? Are we just going to church to feel safe and comfortable, not really committed to the building of Christ's kingdom in this world? 
Galatians 6, 7, and 8 says that God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. You know, he reminds us now in verses 15 through 19 of their indifference. He says, now give careful thought, thought to, from, from this day on. Consider how things were before one stone was laid on another in the Lord's temple. When anyone came to a heap of 20 measures, there were only 10. When anyone went to a wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were only 20. I struck all the work of your hands with blight and mildew and hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. From this day on, from the 24th day on the ninth month, give careful thought to the day when the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. Give careful thought. Is there any seed left in the barn? Until now, the vine and the fig tree, the pomegranate and the olive tree have not borne fruit. From this day on, I will bless you, he says. So apparently they have rededicated themselves. They've taken this seriously, but they must also remember how easily they have been diverted by desire, how their ambition in life got them nothing but emptiness. Their stomachs were never filled. And we have to realize that sin is effectual with very real consequences in life, and it comes in the form of indifference, doesn't it? It's not just sleeping around or looking at porn, those outward sins of the flesh are a lot less destructive in many ways than the, the sins of the heart. It is attitudinal. It's a condition of the heart. When God is saying, what God is saying is this. He says, I know your hearts. I know when you're serious and I know when you're just playing me. He says, mark this day that you laid the first stone, the day of your true rededication, because from this day on, I will bless you. In other words, we need to repent. We need to turn around. And this reminds us, doesn't it, of the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 12 that we've been studying for this whole year pretty much. It comes up almost in every sermon. And that is a promise that has, or a covenant that has been reflected from Genesis all the way through Revelation. That we are blessed to be a blessing to the people groups of this earth, that we are blessed to bring God's glory to the nations. We are made to be a holy nation, a kingdom of priests, drawing people back into right relationship with God by way of Christ. And God has plopped us right here in the main line for that wonderful work. So what's the message here? Firstly, don't kill your prophets. <laughs> don't kill your pastor, right? Number two, seek first his kingdom and all else will fall into place. In other words, turn from your indifference and build God's house. Now, how can you do that? Well, if God has stirred your heart and you've answered that call, then it starts by not just feeding yourself, but feeding others, right? We want to discover and develop a, a real culture of discipleship. Disciples who are brave and courageous. Disciples who are walking with and following Jesus. Disciples that are like Revelation chapter 2, verse 10, willing to go to even to the death for the sake of the gospel in the lives of other people. 6-8 has a heart and a plan and a strategy to reach others through 
the evangelistic training that we're going to do for the next three weeks on Sunday mornings, through our Alpha class where we're praying to invite three people and come along with them and, and hold this class together, through the relationships that we have at work and our neighbors and school and, and whatever, our families. And finally, we should be praying for these people, praying for our community, praying for our world, praying that they would be reached with the gospel, that, that we would be praying that people's worlds just get overturned, that their false ideologies fail them, and they are left with no other choice but look at, to look into the eyes of Christ and find true life and freedom there. So give careful thought to your ways today, what you seek, your talent and time and treasure and how you're spending them. You are blessed to be a blessing, to bring about the kingdom of God in this world. So let us not choose to live predictable, mediocre, unsatisfying lives by building just our own houses. Since just as Israel had left the temple unfinished, the temple, which is the church, is still unfinished. We have work to do. There are thousands of people groups starting right here in the Eastern Main Line who don't yet know Christ. So let's gather the timber, since how much do you have to hate someone not to proselytize? Amen. Thanks for listening. Let me pray us out of this. Father God, we thank you that you are King of kings and Lord of lords, that that story that began in Genesis and ends in Revelation is expands beyond our current time, that it is the same story, that it's 66 books written as one story, that you pursued your people from the very beginning, even when we turned our back on you, and you pursued them all throughout history up until now, and you're going to pursue them into the future until you return and establish your kingdom in full on the earth and recreate everything anew. And we just pray that you would allow us the great, wonderful opportunity of being a part of building your house in this world. Amen. Amen.